Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Five businesses sued for non-compliance. Learn from their HR mistakes. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy with Assure, uh, and this is a this is a good topic today. I, I hate maybe "good's" not the right word. Uh, we're we're going to unpack five very specific use cases here. Uh, we're not looking to embarrass anybody. These are real stories. We literally just pulled from the headlines. Uh, uh, if you open a paper or open Google every single day. Uh, there's a case where a small business gets in trouble for some HR issue. Uh, rather than finger wagging at everybody and, and telling you what the law says and what to do, what not to do, we just kind of want to unpack five real life examples that have happened. We're not going to name names of companies. We're not looking to embarrass anybody, destroy anybody's uh, uh, employment brand. Uh, but these are real use cases that I think it's important for everybody to understand. So uh, i got the perfect guest uh, to unpack this with me today, regular uh, uh, guest on the show, uh, Brian Schenker. Uh, Brian's an attorney at the Long Island, New York office of Jackson Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the US and New York State Departments of Labor. And Brian regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks, Mike. Uh, looking forward to this one. So let's let's just jump right into it. And I'm gonna do my best not to name names here. Um, and and and, and uh, I, I'll, I'll kind of give I'll paraphrase maybe some of the details of the case, some of the, the headline, if you will. And and what I'd ask for you to do is, you know, unpack what happened, why it happened, what should the employer have done, what is it costing them, etc. Just our best advice that we can to, to help folks avoid these same mistakes, right? So uh, use case number one: uh, there's a two hundred ninety thousand dollar lawsuit by the Department of Labor against a restaurant operator for illegal tip pool violations. Uh, it, it, was a, it was an FLSA, a Fair Labor Standards uh, Act violation that had to do with tips. And they got sued, not by an employee, but, but the Department of Labor for $290,000. What, what can you tell us about this case, this restaurateur, what they did, how they got in trouble, the impact, and, and, and then what they should have done to avoid it? Sure, Mike. So, you know, in this case, I think the the first uh, set of issues, you know, we see are uh, relating to tipped employees, right? So uh, the issues range from, you know, failure to give proper tip notice to improper individuals participating in the tip pool. And, you know, those have significant, you know, minimum wage uh, and other uh, consequences. Uh, so I think, you know, that's the first set of issues I see. 
Uh, I think in this case, there is also an issue of, uh, I believe, uniform uh, deductions. Uh, so, you know, that's another, uh, you know, issue that, you know, employers should be aware of when can, you know, making can, any. Can you explain what that even means? Like some, I'm sure some restaurateurs who provide uniforms and they have a deduction for it know exactly what you're talking about, but there's probably a lot of people don't know what that means. Should they be paying, paying attention to it or not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is one of the more straightforward ones. Uh, pretty easy for an employer to understand this. So under the FLSA, uh, an employer can have employees, you know, bear the cost of uniforms, but not without limit. So here the issue was that the employer deducted the cost of uniforms and those deductions brought the employees under the federal minimum wage, right, which is seven twenty-five an hour. Uh, and so that then becomes a minimum wage issue, right? You cannot deduct uh, for uniforms uh, below that federal minimum wage. Uh, obviously, there could be state law uh, rules depending on your jurisdiction, but under the FLSA, you know, that's what we're looking at in terms of deductions uh, still maintaining at least the minimum wage for those employees. And so, so the, the headline here was around a, a, an illegal tip pool. Was it the, what, and I'm just making some assumptions, was it the way the tip pool then impacted the hour, the, the, the minimum wage threshold, a combination of pooling tips and a uniform deduction and how that took people under the 725 and therefore some type of a trigger? So, yeah, so along those lines. So I think, you know, stepping back, you know, one, taking one step back, uh, you know, talking about the tip credit, right? So yeah. here, this, this employer paid their tipped employees, right? It's a hospitality employer. They paid their tipped employees uh, a tip credit, which, you know, for those not familiar, uh, under the FLSA, uh, an employer may count tips received by employees who, you know, regularly and customarily receive tips uh, against the full minimum wage. So under the federal law, under the FLSA, the maximum tip credit is uh, $5.12 per hour. So this means the employer in this case was uh, paying likely a, a $2.13 cash minimum wage to its employees, right? That's far below the 725, but that's permitted because these were tipped employees. Right. Uh, and so one of the, so there, there are really two issues that impact that, right? So, you know, one is the company failed to provide notice of the tip credit. And, you know, that's the first prerequisite when you have tipped employees and are electing the, uh, the tip credit. Obviously, it's a good benefit to employers. You're paying a rate less than the normal minimum wage. And it works out for the tipped employees because they're getting their wages supplemented by those tips, which should equal at least that five twelve per hour. Yeah. Uh, under the FLSA, there's you know tip notice, uh, you know tip credit notice can be verbal or it can be written. I think as a best practice to uh, employers out there, written notice is the way to go because you know as we say, Mike, over and over again in these. You know, if you didn't document it, it, it didn't happen, right? So right. it's always good when you have a notice requirement under FLSA or any statute to put it in writing, even if it's not required. Uh, and so, you know, that notice is important because it tells the employee you're not being paid the full minimum wage. There's a tip credit. 
you're going to have tips that satisfy, you know, that work to satisfy the minimum wage. And, you know, it, it basically lets them know the framework of how they're being paid. Uh, so failure to provide that notice means that now the employer can't pay $2.13 an hour. They have to pay the full minimum wage. So you talk about damages, right? That's $5.12 per hour for each of those tipped employees who didn't receive the tip note, the tip credit notice, right? That is right. substantial and probably work towards getting to that, you know, almost $300,000 figure. Yeah, um, it, and, yeah. and I would assume for this employer, we won't name their name, uh, 290 grand is, is that's not nothing. That, that, that's a, that's a potentially an existential threat, right? I agree. For, for a company of any size, that's, you know, not going to be pocket change. Um, yeah. And I'll mention, I, and I think participation in the tip pool was something that they, they got this employer for too. So, you know, tip, you know, tipped employees, we have multiple ways we can go about this. Employers can just let the tipped employees take whatever is given to them in terms of tips, or they can establish a tip pool in which, you know, you have a pool of employees that, and it's limited to just those who are, you know, typically your customer facing employees who are, you know, customarily receiving tips in their position. And so, you know, to take a good example, if we take a restaurant, your front of the house people could, could be part of a tip pool. Your back of the house people like, you know, chefs and dishwashers, they can't participate in a tip pool. So right. once you have improper participants in a tip pool, not only does that create issues as to those tips that are paid to them need to then be paid by the employer to the rightful owners of that money, right? The tipped employees, but that can also take result in the employer no longer having the benefit of the tip credit and owing the full minimum wage. And the, the same result would be would would follow if you know managers, for instance, or supervisors, you know, were included in the tip pool, which is a common thing I see, right? Where you know, maybe one day a company is short staffed and they have a manager fill in and, you know, help do service. And they say, okay, well, that manager can participate in the tip pool for that day. Not the case. Uh, managers, if they provide direct service to customers, they can be directly tipped by that customer, but they can't share tips with other employees. So that was another one that uh, this company got dinged on. So I, I always try to give the employer the benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to screw employees over. They're just trying to scrape by a living just like every other entrepreneur and business owner. Um, I think, I think one of the things that probably uh, indirectly helps employers these days is just the law of supply and demand. The labor market is so tight that uh, I think less and less you're going to see these types of, Hey, a, a, a deduction and a, a uniform deduction took them under the minimum wage or I'm trying to apply a tip credit that takes you under the minimum wage because employers are simply having to pay more to even attract talent in the first place. That's probably one uh, external mitigating factor here. But I think it's fair to say I, it, we give these guys the benefit of the doubt that they thought they were probably following the law. The, the two biggest mistakes here was notice they didn't have an employee handbook that, or, or some type of written documentation that, that explicitly explained the policy. <clears throat> and they probably just genuinely misunderstood that you can't have a uniform credit. They knew that you could have a uniform credit, a, a, a uniform deduction, 
but it can't take you under the minimum wage, right? right. So right. two, yeah. I, I can't call them innocent mistakes. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse, but these guys weren't trying to do anything wrong. Probably they probably weren't trying to screw their employees over. But by the way, this is 290 grand, 30 employees. This isn't a hundred person company, right? This is a restaurant tour, 30 employees, 290 grand. So this is super, super serious. You got to take it serious. And I think it's just those two simple things. Get it in the employee handbook, communicate it, train upon it. And then you, you, you got to have a better understanding of the law when it comes to what you can and can't do on deductions. Frank, do, you have any, do you have any insight on in, in what the trigger event was here? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, typically when it comes to the DOL, uh, you're either going to have an employee, one employee uh, or multiple employees come forward with a complaint uh, and that triggers it. And then the DOL might come in and just investigate those, you know, those complainants or uh, they might look at it more broadly and say, well, you know, that complainant was a server and now we're going to look at all servers or we're going to look at every, all 30 employees, yeah. uh, you know, at this restaurant. So I think that's likely what occurred. Uh, sometimes the DOL just focuses on certain uh, industries and will randomly select businesses to audit based on, you know, where they're seeing a, a trend of violations. Uh, but in either way, you know, what, you know, as you said, even if this wasn't uh, intentional by the employer, you know, especially when we're talking about the FLSA and wage and hour law, you know, intent uh, is irrelevant, right? And that's the tough part for employers that, uh, you know, just trying to get by and doing things without understanding what the law says, you know, you're not going to have a defense that says, well, I acted in good faith, right? No, you don't act in good faith unless you've reached out to, you know, professionals like, you know, an HR or an attorney to find out what's the appropriate way to pay those people. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this article and I'm seeing there's one other component here where servers were required to perform unpaid pre-shift work before the restaurant opened. So uh, my, my son, you know, young, young man starting out and finding his way in this world, working for a company, uh, I, I won't say their name, not trying to get anybody in trouble, but uh, you know, they would pay, it, it, was, it, was, it was a job where they would go on location from home to home. Uh, he would drive to the employer's uh, home and uh, he would be, my son would get paid while on the job site at the homes, but wouldn't get paid driving sometimes an hour at a time from job site to job site to job site. I, I, I think there's a lot of employers just simply don't understand you can't do that. When they, when they show up to be engaged, ready for work, they're on the job, right? And so just because your restaurant doesn't open until eight o'clock, if you have servers that are prepping tables, making coffee, putting silverware and napkins, whatever it is they're doing, they're on the clock. Absolutely. And, you know, so I, I think that's exactly what, what happened here, right? These employees were more or less not permitted to clock in until the start of their scheduled shift, but they were performing work before that. Uh, you know, what every employer should have is a written policy regarding timekeeping, right? And it should... It should state, among other things, you know, what constitutes work time, meal breaks, you know, remote work, you know, all those things. But then specifically as to this, 
type of claim, which, you know, we would call off the clock work, it's going to prohibit off the clock work that's, you know, not recorded and, you know, uh, threaten disciplinary measures, for example, if that if that policy is violated. Right. So, you know, and again, the important part is really that managers and supervisors you know, are aware of, you know, these policies and practices and know how, you know, what the expectations are. Right. Yeah. That, for instance, if an employee violates the policy and clocks in before their start of the shift against the company policy, then they can be disciplined up to termination for that. But the company still needs to pay them for that work they perform. Right. right. So even unauthorized overtime, unauthorized work that must be paid. But disciplinary action can follow if, it, if the actions you know, violated company policy. Right. Let's move on to use case number two here. So uh, uh, it's another restaurant, but this one has to do with an EEOC case. Uh, it was race-based harassment by shift managers. Um, so re- it was a restaurant. They got fined $150,000 by the EEOC. Uh, uh, un- unpack this one for us, if you could, please. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this case involved a, uh, a couple, uh, you know, some uh, managers or some employees who were using, you know, racial slurs. I think it was shift managers who were using those. Yeah. Uh, and and again, right, I think it was regular use. It wasn't one time issue. It was continual and constant, uh, you know, inappropriate you know, racial comments. Uh, and so what is this, right? This brings up hostile work environment, right? A classic case of uh, where, a hostile work environment where uh, the workplace is permeated with you know, discriminatory you know, ridicule or insult to the extent that it alters the terms and conditions of employment uh, for those individuals. So you know, the key here uh, for a hostile work environment claim is that you know, it's verbal or physical conduct that's unwelcomed. And the conduct, right, this, you know, and here is racial slurs, right? Those have to do with the individual's protected class here, the protected class of race, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but now again, right, just, you know, before we get into, you know, what companies can do, you know, it's important to understand that under federal law, it needs, this conduct needs to be severe and pervasive. Right. And so here it was. Right. It was uh, on a regular basis. It was over, you know, a period of time. uh, Right. Because, again, isolated incidents uh, don't necessarily result in uh, in a claim here. And again, I think we've mentioned this before, Mike, that, you know, the federal anti-discrimination laws, you know, aren't a, uh, you you know, they don't mandate civility in the workplace. Right. They don't mandate that people be nice to each other or kind but that you can't do certain things based on protected categories. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's exactly what happened here. Um, I, I think, I think what something I want to emphasize for employers here um, that, and just to be clear, this was uh, this, these were black employees that were experiencing the, 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 the racial slurs. Um, we'll assume that nobody was such an idiot that they're using the most vulgar of words not to be said in this show um, uh, it, it may have been supervisors who thought they were being funny, right? Uh, uh, but to your point, it's, it was fu- funny, not funny, but it was, it was based on race. So protected class, 
uh, enforced by EEOC. It wasn't because they were tall or short or or whatever that they were being picked on or hazed. It was specific words that were race-based words. <clears throat> Number two, if you're a business owner, you're a small business owner, maybe you're on-site, maybe, maybe you're completely innocent here, um, and you would never, ever use words like that. That doesn't mean that you as an owner are not responsible for the behavior of your staff. These, this happened to be two shift supervisors who are were, who were doing this, right? But you as the owner in this case, uh, how much was it? $150,000 in an out-of-court settlement Hundred and fifty thousand dollars. You own a small restaurant and you gotta write a check for hundred and fifty thousand. I mean, either you got great insurance or you or you happen to have a super successful business or you're out of business. It's yeah. those are kind of your options there, right? So, yeah. so what's your guidance to the to the entrepreneur, to the business owner, um, on, on how to mitigate this from ever happening in the first place, knowing that, hey, I would never do this. But I'm also responsible for the behavior of all my employees. And it doesn't have to be a supervisor. It could have been a coworker. Exactly. And so the way you went through that, it just, you know, zeroed my mind in on training, right? There are, there are other things, but training, right? Because, you know, look, maybe these, you know, supervisors thought that, you know, look, you, you know, stereotypes, you know, jokes that involve stereotypes, you know, so one person might think that's funny. Another might find it offensive. And again, you know, we're not talking about one insensitive, you know, stereotype or comment, you know, on one day. This is stuff that happens over and over again, right? And so it's important that companies train, like you said, not just the supervisors, but all employees, right? Their subordinates, because hostile work environment can, you know, be created by, you know, anyone in the workplace. Right. But, you know, especially supervisors who are involved in disciplinary decisions and, uh, you know, hiring and firing decisions, right? They should certainly be trained on, you know, equal employment opportunity policies, procedures, uh, and, you know, how to spot and identify harassment issues, right? So maybe you have a supervisor who's not involved in it, but they're on the floor, right? They're, they're boots on the ground. They see what's going on. They overhear things. They can see when someone might not, you know, be too happy about uh, comments that uh, others are making. And so, even if there is not a complaint, you know, managers should understand what to look for and to proactively address these situations, right? That's, that's, that's right. going to protect the employer. You know, we, we've talked so much, uh, I think, in, uh, in the past also about, you know, having available internal complaint procedures, which is another thing that, you know, companies should do, right? Having an internal complaint process Typically, that's going to be set forth in, in the handbook that you mentioned earlier that all companies should have and distribute to their employees. And, you know, it should give employees you know, several pathways to complain internally so that the company is the one dealing with these issues and can, you know, nip them in the butt before, for instance, you know, the employee, you know, goes to the EEOC, Right. If this company had done that, if they had a complaint procedures and it handled something early on, it might have never gotten to the point where an employee, you know, felt the need to make a claim because the company would have resolved it. Um, yeah. But I think in addition to those, I mean, obviously, we talked about having EEO policies, right? You need written policies that should define what harassment and discrimination are and, you know, say that it's not permitted. Uh, 
you know, and there should be written acknowledgements that employees receive this. Because again, if we don't have a signed acknowledgement, how are we going to prove that, you know, the employee received the actual policy or, or the handbook? And I just really want to emphasize here before we move on to the next one, it is your responsibility as the employer to create this environment where these things can't happen. So it, I, I can, again, try to give benefit of the doubt to an employer. I can, I can envision a work environment where two employees, they might really just give each other a whole bunch of, you know, they might give each other the business on, their, on a regular basis. And between the two of them, perhaps it's funny. And maybe there is even a racial component in the jokes that they tell each other, but it could make other people in the room uncomfortable. That's all it takes. And so you as an employer, we're not suggesting that you have some sterile, antiseptic, uh, no fun culture, but you do have to stand for the law, regardless of what you feel, you got to stand for the law and you can't tolerate even jokes that it would appear people are laughing at if they are based on race, gender, ethnicity, origin, sexual preference, you, you, they're protected classes, period. And so uh, to me, the best way to protect against this is just don't allow that as part of your culture. You can say, okay, guys, that's not appropriate. We're not going to go there. Let's have a fun environment, but not th 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 that, that, that's off limits. Uh, that content is off limits here. It's yeah. as simple as right. that, right? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You okay. don't know when someone's going to be offended by something. And so these inappropriate topics, even if you think people are okay with them, they're not work you know, related topics that shouldn't be happening at, in the workplace. And, and we're not suggesting here that everyone has to be a wilting flower and, and, and try to protect, you know, and, and, and I don't, I want to be slightly politically correct. We're not looking to create a safe space for everybody here. Right. Um, you can be, like you said, the law doesn't, require you to be civil or kind or respectful or even pleasant. But the law does prevent you from race, gender, or you can't, you can't have language that discriminates and any of those classes is laid out by the law, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, let's go to case number three. Um, um, it is another EEOC case. It's a discrimination case. Um, but this one is a, a little bit different. It's not race-based. This is based on a disability, right? So there was a $40,000 penalty for uh, a hotel. This is one hotel. I won't, we won't say the name. It was, a, it was a franchisee of a name that you would recognize. Uh, $40,000 penalty. Uh, it was a disability discrimination lawsuit. Can you unpack that one for us, Brian? Right. So, uh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, disability discrimination is, you know, one of those uh, areas under Title VII, right, the federal uh, anti-discrimination statute that is a little different than the other bases, right, like sex and race, because disability discrimination provisions have an additional requirement that an employer provide reasonable accommodations, right? So uh, not only can you not you know, discriminate against someone on the basis of a disability, but you need to, you know, take take proactive steps uh, to accommodate that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in this case, really, you know, 
what uh, what was one of the the big issues was you know leave as a reasonable accommodation, right? And so you know typically we think of a reasonable accommodation as something that is going to enable the employee to perform their essential functions, right? The the main components of their job uh, with that accommodation. Uh, but courts have found that a leave of absence. And under federal law, that's typically going to be, you know, a leave of absence of some, you know, definite duration, right? We're not talking about unlimited duration of leave. We're talking about a specific, you know, period of time uh, that's requested in advance. And it's likely that the employee would be able to, you know, return and perform the functions on return, uh, you know, when they come yeah. back. You know, that's that, that can be a reasonable accommodation. Uh, and so, you know, Again, it's not necessarily exactly like the FMLA where uh, it's job protected and they have to be returned to their same exact, exact job, but there is that same idea, right? That they're going to be brought back to the same or similar position uh, and you know they won't be prejudiced by the fact that you know they took protected leave, right? So you know, here, and yep, I, I want to I want to kind of get into the nuance in this one. And I'm, I, again, I'm not, we're not going to name names. I think anybody watching, listening today thinks I, I'm not going to discriminate someone with, you know, in a wheelchair uh, with a, a, a vision impairment or yeah, I think I think we naturally gravitate towards these obvious things. I'm a good person. I would never do that. In this case, this is an employee. Um, some, something happened, had an emergency room visit, was out for a bit, but then was cleared by doctors to return to work. But the hotel simply stopped scheduling that person. And I think all of us know what that really means uh, in, in the retail world or a restaurant. When they stop scheduling you, uh, frequently that's a soft firing, right? <clears throat> now, if they wanted to fire this employee, they could have probably good documentation of performance expectations or missed all that kind of stuff. They would have been on very firm ground to probably terminate the employee. But when the employee goes to the emergency room, has a little bit of leave, and then they mysteriously stop getting scheduled. I mean, if we were to give the employer the benefit of the doubt, maybe it was a terrible employee. Maybe, maybe it was a great employee. We have no idea. But the fact that the employer used this medical leave as a trigger event to stop scheduling them that was the violation with ADA. And I think that's not an obvious scenario to so many right. employers, right? So yep. do you think and I'm summarizing that right? Yeah, I think you are. And so, right, specific to that point, right, employers should have written rules regarding leave, right? Including leave under, you know, for a disability accommodation, right? They should address, you know, the length of leave, the protocol for, you know, extending the leave since, you know, that often occurs. And, yeah. you know, here, relevant to this case, right, the protocol for what happens, you know, at the end of the leave, right? So here, you know, the it appears the employee went about it the right way. So, you know, after the end of uh, leave, when someone's expected back, uh, you know, generally employers should request, you know, some type of medical certification that clears the employee to return to work either without accommodation or, you know, with a reasonable accommodation. 
Yeah. Uh, and so it's, you know, once you have that as the employer, this person is then cleared to work. And, you know, whether it's going to be that same position or a similar one, or, you know, maybe they've been out for a while and the department's been restructured. But, you know, now it's the obligation of the employer to discuss with the employee how we're going to return you to work. Uh, and, and look, you know, I think getting to the issue of discipline, right? You know, I, I think there there are a couple scenarios, right? So sometimes we just have employees who aren't, you know, great employees and, you know, they are going to be subject to discipline and they end up, you know, taking leave, you know, you know, in the midst of that time period when they're not performing well, right? Other times we have, you know, uh, less legitimate situations where we believe, you know, an employee is, you know, taking a leave of absence or requesting, you know, disability uh, leave because they expect they might be fired and this is their way to kind of, you know, make sure they're safe. Now, how often that occurs, you know, not not exactly sure. I certainly have a, you know, clients who, who feel that that occurs uh, from time to time. But look, to be clear, employers can still discipline individuals who are out on leave disability leave or have returned from it, right? The, the key question there is, would you take the same action against uh, an employee had they not taken leave, right? So right. if an employee screwed up a huge report or, you know, violated company policy before they took their leave, but, you know, there wasn't an opportunity to investigate it and issue the discipline, an employer can absolutely issue that discipline while the employee's on leave or, you know, when they return. Now, the key is, as you discussed earlier, documentation, right? Because without documentation, it's very much going to look retaliatory, which is you know, unlawful. Right. But with the proper documentation as to you know, what the issues were, what the policies that were violated were, the timing of it, you know, those are what would allow an employer to you know, take that action. So here, right, we, we don't quite know. I mean, this employer might have had legitimate reasons to terminate this employee, but maybe they didn't document them correctly, right? right? And so therefore they had nothing to go on and it looks quite bad when you refuse to let someone you know, return from, uh, from their leave. And, 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 we, and to be clear, we're not choosing sides here. Maybe this is a fantastic employer, employee and a terrible employer. We, we have no idea. But the, the point is, as an employer, the way you protect yourself is documentation, handbook, training, documentation of that training and all your conversations, you, you can't overdo it in the documentation and expectation setting. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to our next one. Um, so this is, this is an interesting, I think we're going to see lots more of this in the future. Uh, it, it's around job ads, job postings, the number of laws popping up on the state uh, county municipality level is just exploding the number of laws passing around what you can and can't say uh, or are required to say, you know, pay transparency laws, uh, 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 you know, uh, salary, salary issues, salary bans. There's the whole kinds of stuff here that are making something as simple as a job posting more complex. So this is a penalty of $3,855 for a job ad, $3,800 uh, penalty, and two years of federal monitoring for a business with a discriminatory job ad. Brian, help everybody understand 
what, what, what was in the ad and what mistake did the employer make here? Yeah, so this one is really interesting and I think a, a great example for employers uh, uh, on a job advertisement issue that they might not really be thinking and, you know, the re related issues. So, you know, this didn't apply, right? They weren't saying, you know, clean, clean criminal history or, you know, things like that. What happened here was that the job advertisement limited uh the uh, applications to in applicants with certain immigration statuses, right? So the the ad stated that you needed to have you know sp a specific visa status um, in order you know that's available to certain foreign nationals uh, studying at colleges or universities in the U.S. Right, the opt op optional practical training program, right? And so what the result here is is that. They, the Department of Justice found this company was discriminating on the basis of uh, citizenship or national origin, right? Because they weren't accepting applica applications from, for instance, a U.S. citizen or, you know, an authorized worker uh, who's a citizen of, you know, another country, but not under, uh, didn't have this, uh, you, know, part, you know, visa status. So I think taking a step back, right? There, the the law the federal law here that we're dealing with is the uh, Immigration Reform and Control Act, right? IRCA, as we call it. Um, but what that act requires uh, is that you know number one, it this is a law that addresses I nines, right? So the fact that you know whenever you onboard an employee, you're going to have them by the first day of employment uh, fill out an I nine form and you know show you documentation that they are who they say they are, right? Their identity and their work authorization. Yeah. Uh, and so there are a whole bunch of requirements there. The Department of Justice you know, oversees that as well. But the same law also prohibits employers from discriminating against applicants on the basis of citizenship status, right? Which is not covered by uh, Title VII or national origin. And so actually the funny thing here is that national origin is addressed by Title VII, but Title VII only applies to employers with 15 or more employees. So here we have uh, this act that applies to employers with four to 15 employers with respect to national origin. So it kind of covers that gap and brings in even smaller employers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, right here, I mean, look, the, what happened here, including is something in your ad like that, that, you know, your provision, uh, position is only available to people with certain uh, statuses, you know, that's going to be, you know, discrimination on the basis of citizen status, national origin. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a whole it's it, that that type of thing would be very problematic. And look, the, you know, I've handled these claims before and, you know, the Department of Justice will go after, you know, less obvious things, right? Not not necessarily advertisements. They even look at uh, E-Verify records. So E-Verify is an optional, you know, voluntary program that employers can supplement their I-9 process with to help, right. you know, detect fraud. Um, and the I-9, the, the data that employers put into uh, the E-Verify system goes to the D Department of Justice. And sometimes they bring claims or bring in, uh, start investigations, you know, based on, you know, what they're seeing from E-Verify, right? If 
if they see that everyone's showing a column A document, you know, from the I-9 form instead of, you know, a column B and a column C, that might, you know, tip them off, right? It's a, you know, it's a substantial deviation from, you know, normal percentages, right? So they will investigate even less obvious things. And, you know, look, what I would suggest is this is a small fine, this, you know, 3000 and change fine. What often can happen is if there's a problem with how the company is doing something, it's going to likely impact more than just one individual, right? It's going to impact a whole bunch. And then, you know, these penalties per person, while they're, they might be small per person, they multiply. There can also be back wages available, injunctive relief, right? Requiring uh, the company to hire or rehire an employee. Uh, and so, you know, of course, you know, the civil penalties as well. Brian, let, uh, let's get into the specifics of this one, because I, I think this this could fall into the category of intellectually interesting, unless you unless you just realize how simple this was. And forgive me if you said it. I, I want to read the, the title of this ad. So this is an IT company. They're looking for a developer. And again, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here that they, didn't, they weren't trying to break the law. That in fact, they may have been trying to do something noble, right? Um, the title is of the ad, Software Developer Exclusively for OPT. So the ad stated that, uh, that the applicants must be under OPT visa status. What, it, and forgive me if you said it, what does OPT stand for? What does it mean? Right, that's uh, the Optional Practical Training Program. Uh, it's a, a program for uh, college students from, you know, for foreign nationals who are in US so, college. So here's an employer, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They probably thought they were being noble Hey, let's give let's create a job. I, I I'd love to be able to tap into this talent pool, people in this program, give people from other places a, a chance. I suspect there's talented people coming from there, um, and, and, and without even thinking that they're discriminating against everybody else. So, so I think the message here is uh, be noble, great, but when you post a job. You can only restrict based on the requirements to perform skills and requirements to perform the job. So there's a skills component. Hey, do you actually have the skills? Do you have the certifications? Do you have a driver's license because this requires making deliveries? Are you physically in this area that you can you can perform that job? Right? Uh, can you lift boxes over such and such weight? They it has to tie to the actual performance of the job. And so if you're putting any restriction. Because the, the inverse of this would be just as egregious, right? So, yeah. hey, I don't want to. I don't want to train any rookies here. I only want some experienced people. Uh, you couldn't put an ad that excluded people with OPT status. You can, however, say looking for seasoned professionals with at least three to four years experience, right? But right. you can't discriminate based on a class or a specific group. It's got to be in what is required to perform the job. Yeah. Mike, great point. And I think, you know, that type of that guidance there, right, making job advertisements, you know, have it only containing, you know, job related, business related uh, information and requirements, you know, that'll save companies from, you know, not just this type of, uh, you know, citizenship or national origin type claim, but, you know, many of the other types of uh, claims that can come from, you know, potentially discriminatory ads, right, where, again, this ad is going out in the public. It should be the general guidelines of what you're looking for for this position, right? 
you know, they of course, right? This this uh, company they could have considered applicants with OPT visas, uh, but they didn't need to make that a requirement for the position, right? So I, I think that's the difference, yeah. right? Considering diverse applicants, like you said, very noble, right? That's what that's what companies should sure. be doing for a number of of uh, valid reasons, but. You know, we you know you don't want to limit it and say, hey, you know, we're looking for you know non-U.S. citizens to fill this position, right? You know, you can't go you know to that extent. Right, right. All right, last uh, last case I want to explore here. Um, this is again, it's EEOC. This is sex-based discrimination. Um, I think what captures the headlines is. Uh, equal pay, um, uh, women in the C-suite, women in, in highly visible jobs. And that's a whole other topic. We're not, we're not going there. This is a case where the, this is a, a manufacturer. Uh, they were fined by the EEOC $252,768 because it was discovered, based originating from a complaint, I assume, that they had unfair hiring practices for hiring machine operators in the shop floor. Right. right. So yes. we're falling into, so, we're falling into big time stereotype Ville here. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not interested in, 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 uh, in a political angle on this discussion, but what I am interested in, what does the law say and what are the best practices that small employers, all employers must follow when hiring applicants, by the way, the outcome of that is going to equal, you know, much more right. equal outcomes as well. But what say you? Yeah. So, I mean, look, right here, we're obviously talking about, you know, sex discrimination and following what we were just talking about in the last case. Right. You know, we're talking about decisions that are not job related and consistent with business necessity. Right. So let's just start with that general premise before we get into the hiring aspect. Right that whenever an employer is distinguishing between employees or treating them differently, you know, those should be based on, you know, job related or business related distinctions, not distinctions related to protected classes, right? That's discriminatory, right? So, right, the thought that, you know, here a a woman uh, could not operate a certain machine, yeah, that's, that's, you know, entirely improper, right? So, you know, this is classic disparate treatment, treating people of a protected category who are similarly situated to people outside of it, men, in a different, uh, you know, or discriminatory way. Um, You know, not to say that, you know, this was not a, you know, company-wide policy. It may have been, but, you know, one of the things that makes me think about is how managers, right, can be in a problem, right? Even if there's no official policy that, you know, women can't perform, uh, you know, that machine operating job, right? If you have managers and supervisors who are, you know, telling, you know, the women who want, who, you know, are saying, I want to apply for this position or expressing interest that, you know, no, that that's not for you or, you know, otherwise, you know, basically, you know, pushing them away from that, you know, that's very problematic, right? So they need to understand, you know, we go back to training, right? They need to understand the managers, supervisors, that they play a key role in preventing discrimination and making sure that, you know, the criteria for discipline, promotion, hiring, fire are the same for everyone, right? 
Yes. But, you know, here, you know, look, with specifically with respect to, you know, the hiring, um, yeah, you know, under federal laws, it's, you know, just as it's unlawful to discriminate against employees, you know, in the, you know, once they're an employee of your company, it, it's likewise uh, unlawful to discriminate against applicants, right? So, you know, under Title Seven, right, it, it prohibits uh, discrimination based on race, color, religion, uh, sex. That that includes pregnancy and national origin. Um, you have the, you know, age, uh, uh, you know, the age under the ADA. You have you know the Equal Pay Act, right? Yeah. Um, and so here, I think you know, it touches on the, the conduct here touches on a couple of those, right? Um, I, I think that you know. Clearly, you have a sex issue there under Title VII. Uh, this makes me think that, you know, there could also be equal pay issues, right? Where, you know, men and women should be paid equally for equal work. Um, you know, there are many state laws coming out, you know, in the past, and they continue on, on that issue uh, that have even more bite than the federal law. So, you know, again, you know, that just goes back to, you know, setting wages, setting any conditions of employment should be based on job related matters. Right. Not 100%. not any protected categories. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it's the same theme. It's it's yeah. your job posting, your interview practice, your onboarding, everything from pre hire to post employment, every every process you have. It, it, it's got to be based on the job itself. What are the skills, duties to perform the job? Um, uh, this, this one's harder to try to give benefit of the doubt to folks. Like I, I think about maybe you know, I, I grew up in a in a blue collar environment. My dad's he's a good man. I could see my dad thinking, oh, that you know, th this is a this is a dangerous job operating that machine. I would never want a woman to do that because he's trying to be chivalrous but not intentionally discriminatory, but it would clearly be discriminatory, right? right. So uh, it, it, you have yes. to make your, your criteria for the hiring to be about the job and nothing else, right? Yeah, and so, exactly. And I, I think an example that might drive that home, right, to, to many employers, because like many, many people out there listening to this might be saying, of course, I would never, you know, bar women from a certain position right. and only, right. you know, apply that to men. But think of this example, right? You have a woman who, you know, operates the machine, you know, that machinery, right? And then she becomes pregnant and notifies the company. And now, like you said, right, the owner, this male owner who thinks he's doing the chivalrous thing says, all right, I'm taking you off your position and putting you in a less strenuous position, right? There, there is no basis for that. And that would be found to be discriminatory, right? Because right. this person hasn't requested an accommodation. I mean, if there was an issue with performance and, you know, the individuals, you know, moving along with their pregnancy and you're having performance issues because they can't do the job, right? That would be much different than just presuming they can't do it because of the fact they're pregnant or because of the fact, um, right. you know, that it's a, it's a woman. So, yeah, you know, that, you know, even though this sounds like an old school mentality, you know, I see these types of things come up more often than, than you might think, where, 
again, it's usually not going to be an official, you know, company policy about it. It's going to be something that just informally happens where, right. yeah, that we have no women in this position and we deny all their, you know, applications for promotion. And again, right, you know, giving a company the benefit of the doubt, right? There, maybe there were reasons to favor those male applicants that had nothing to do with, right, them being male. But you're not gonna get that benefit of the doubt in a court if you don't have documentation suggesting, you know, why the various women who applied were uh, denied and, you know, the men who applied were accepted. And I think here, right, you probably don't get the, any, any favorable presumption if you're the employer, if, right, the documentation then shows that, you know, the males you promoted had, you know, you know inferior qualifications that, than the women, right? That's extremely I'll try to manufacture an example. So, so maybe, maybe an employer, you, you, got, a, you got a drill press or, or a mill, and you got to lift this 150-pound piece of metal up on to under the jig to, to to run this machine. So maybe anybody could run the machine, but you know, hey, this is heavy lifting, so this, therefore it's a man's job. Um, you you can't discriminate based on based on sex. You can discriminate saying, hey, this requires the ability to lift 150 pounds repeatedly throughout the day, which by the way is going to exclude a whole bunch of men too, and there will be some women that absolutely can also do that, right? but you make it about the job. And I, I think this is one of those, our mutual friend, Mary Simmons, she and I did a, a, a show really just on this topic about uh, 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 blind biases. We just don't, we're, we're, we're blind to our biases there. The, the, so definitionally, we don't know what they are, right? And I think we all think, and for the most part, I think we are good people. We're not outwardly discriminating against people of different sex or color or origin. Uh, or disability, but it's these really subtle ones. Like we discriminate based on height, good looks. Uh, that, that's the single biggest discriminatory factor people have that's, that's subconscious, right? There, there's a lot of things that we discriminate based on without realizing it. And so the, I think the solution to a whole bunch of these use cases we talked today, it's an employee handbook that explicitly states your policies. It's continued training on those policies, right? It's job descriptions with performance expectations, good documentation of performance reviews, how you're meeting those expectations, uh, compliant job uh, openings and ads. That these all all these things just go hand in glove together in, in, in part of a framework to create a productive and compliant work environment. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, following right up on that documentation issue, I think one of the other uh, things that the uh, the employer in this case got, uh, you know, dinged for on penalties was violation of, I believe it was the EEOC's, uh, uh, you know, personnel record retention requirements. Uh, and so I do want to touch on that because, you know, not only are we dealing with the EEOC, but there are a lot of different statutes that have different retention requirements for companies. Uh, and it's, it's very important, right? Because that documentation you keep, you, you, you create, right? Disciplinary or just, you know, personnel files, payroll, time records, whatever it might be. You know, of course, you keep those for some amount of time, but when, when is it time to get rid of them? How long do you need to keep them? So that really ties into, you know, 
what the statutes say or statutes of limitations issues. So uh, under the EEOC, right, all employers must keep personnel records for at least one year, uh, you know, from that date of termination. Uh, under the ADEA, uh, you know, payroll records must be kept for at least three years, right? Uh, under the FLSA, uh, wage and hour law, uh, the statute of limitations can be up to three years. So employers should be keeping, you know, all their wage and hour records for at least three years. And yeah. again, right, there's, we, you know, we don't always get into the state law side of things because, you know, we're, we're dealing with, uh, you know, diverse uh, uh, employers throughout the country, but you should know what the requirements are for keeping, for maintaining records under your state laws, because, for instance, in New York, right, we have the New York labor law, which is the state counterpart of the FLSA. And that has a statute of limitations of six years. So employers in New York should be maintaining their you know, time and pay records for at least six years, if not longer. Uh, so I, I think that's real important because, again, I've had issues with with clients, whether it's, uh, you know, wage and hour issues or you know, I-9 and immigration issues where they got the first part right. They, they created records, you know, at, at the time that were contemporaneous that were what they were supposed to have. But then they they tossed them, right? They thought that once the employee, uh, you know, resigned or was terminated that they no longer needed these records. Then a wage and hour lawsuit is filed or, uh, you know, there's an audit, you know, an agency audit. And now you don't have the records and you're saying, well, we had them, but, you know, you can imagine that an employer is not going to do too well telling, you know, an agency or a court that, hey, we had the records. Sorry, we don't have them now. Right. It's as if you never had them. So real important to create the records, just as important to know how long you need to keep them. I think maybe let me say this in closing, Brad. This, well, we're going to have to repeat this format. I think this is super helpful. Sometimes... Uh you know, I said at the top of the hour, sometimes it's easy to get finger waggy uh, to business owners about HR laws because uh, it's complex. There's lots of them. There's more every day. For every law they pass, they, they retract zero. Uh, so this just gets harder and harder every day for, for business owners. Um, but sometimes it, we, we just got to unpack the real life scenarios that are happening every day. We're, we're, these, are, these are five examples we just picked out of the headlines from the last, I want to say, week or two, right? I mean, so these are these happen all the time. Um, we would never, ever, ever, ever guide companies on ways to break the law. But I think it's fair to say that most of these folks got in trouble. Most of these employers got in trouble. It prob I'm making a guess. It probably originated with an employee complaint. An employee complaint that led to an EEOC violation in, uh, or fine to a Department of Labor audit. Um, uh, these are, it's unlikely that these things originated from some random DOL audit that just showed up, the auditor showed up at the door one day and said, Hey, we want to look at the books. It probably started with a disgruntled employee and the, and you have to be compliant. There's no excuse. You have to. And the best way to mitigate against mistakes is if you're being a good person, these mistakes happen usually innocently. You didn't do it on purpose is to create, an, uh, create a great employment culture. When your employees know that you're not trying to screw them on purpose, they're, they're more likely to come to you with their grievance than they are to you know somebody in your terrible profession of being a lawyer and trying to sue their pants off, 
right? Uh, or go directly to a, a, a DOL EOC. It usually is, a, is an employee not happy, finds an attorney, and then Pandora's box opens up. The, the better relationship you have with your employees, the more open, transparent, trustworthy, uh, you can work through your issues together, right? And usually preempt these problems, but that doesn't prevent anybody's uh, from being responsible for following the law in the first place. Brent, I'll give you the last word. What would you say in closing? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're, you're spot on there, right? The, the goal is to be 100% compliant. And unfortunately, there are some things, you know, that an employer will miss or, you know, supervisors will do that are against policy. But again, right, I, I think, you know, outside of having that compliance, right, having a good culture, having an open door policy, having employees understand that if they bring a complaint to the company, it will be taken seriously and resolved. You know, that sets a great culture and that sets up an employer to be able to resolve these types of issues before it becomes a $200,000 issue or before, you know, right. one individual issue becomes a class action complaint. Because right. often most, you know, from, from the cases I, I handle, there's usually some opportunity before it rises to the level of litigation that right. the company could have addressed it. Right. Uh, and it, it's so important to understand how to address things, uh, you know, what the issues are and, yeah. and to just, you know, make your employees feel that they're respected. Right. It goes a long way. Yeah. I, I will add one last thing. Even if you are 100 percent compliant, if your employees don't likely like you, they can still complain and you could have cost of litigation and cost to defend in any of these issues, even if they're erroneous. So, uh, uh, again, compliance is the baseline. Culture is what you're really aiming at. Brian, always enjoy talking to you, learn, learn something every time we do. So thanks for joining me today. And thanks for everybody else for joining. Uh, until next week, we'll talk to you later. At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws. Visit AssureSoftware.com.